Welcome to On The Metal, Tales from the Hardware Software Interface. I'm Brian Cantrell. With me, as always, is Jess Frizzell. Hey, Jess. Hey, Brian. And joining us is our boss, Steve Tuck. Hey, Steve. Lucky to be here. All right. Keep us in line. Uh, Jess, you want to wanna tell us who's joined us in the garage today? Yes. Today, we have Jeff Rothschild. Um, very fortunate to have him. And we have brought him into the garage. And we actually already started talking about some stuff that we have in here. Uh, one of which was an IBM Basic manual. And Jeff, you, when you you came, first of all, welcome to On the Metal. It's great oh, to have thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and you know, you immediately started looking at our manuals. Um, and I know that, like uh, a lot of them, have personal resonance for me and personal resonance for you. And I know you saw the IBM manuals. Um, and the, those are those were great manuals, weren't they? The boxes. It, they were. It was. It was. It was. Felt very impressive to have that whole row of boxes uh, sitting on your desk next to the uh, to the IBM PC. It, it, it felt quite official. It, all right. So so tell us when you first had those manuals, and tell us about some of those manuals that meant something to you. Well, I bought a uh, IBM PC right when it came out. I just figured this was going to be an important platform, and I should know everything there was to know about it. I figured if I knew a little bit more than somebody else, there might be some advantage to that. First thing I did was I noticed there was a a disassembler. And so I disassembled MS-DOS. I laid out 20 feet of uh, paper listing oh, on the floor wow. of my apartment and uh, got to work commenting it. Wow, that must have been... So, all right, so your apartment. So you're an adult at this point. So, uh, sort of, yeah. You know, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. um, I was in my 20s. You're in your 20s. So really, really perfect timing for the PC. And what, so what did you learn from, from I mean, MS-DOS? That must have been an incredible educational experience. Well, I understood how the uh, file control blocks worked. I you know, recognized that you know, there was state associated with an open file that persisted past the close of the file. And oddly enough, I did find that very useful later because some applications would operate on a file, would officially do a close, and then continue to move the file pointer and do reads and writes because it didn't matter. That state was not... Uh, eliminated on close. So uh, the FCB-based I.O. was, you know, I had to understand it. I needed to understand uh, stack switching, uh, be moving between the uh, user stack and, and the system stack. So it was quite useful to have that commented code. Wow. And did you do that solo? Did you? Uh, on my own. Wow. And it, I mean, the, it's disassembly, obviously. So it's not, it does not come with even, do you have symbols? Do you have identifiers? I mean, uh, what did you have to go on? No, I just created my own. I, you know, there was numeric identifiers in the disassembly, but then I created my own symbols. Once I figured out what something did, I'd create a name for it. Oddly enough, many years later, I did see uh, portions of MS-DOS and had to go back and check. And my names weren't that different uh, in That's some tough. in most cases. <laughs> Do you you don't still have that? that no, of course copy. Not. I mean, of course it, be, not. Uh, it would be invaluable. I think I know, to, like, to actually <laughs> learn how it worked. That's so cool. And I also used it in order to do an I/O redirector. Uh, one of the first products I did on on MS DOS was a file redirector for uh, moving data to making moving file ops to a Unix system. So effectively, like a primitive version of NFS. But there was no VFS interface in in, in MS DOS, so I uh, created something like that in order to do a product called uh, PC interface that allowed a MS DOS program to use a Unix host as its remote file system. <laughs> what year is that? Oh, early eighties. Wow! That in fact, that, that technology uh, was purchased by Sun Microsystems and became uh, the client side of PC NFS. Whoa! Wow! Because the protocol was close enough to what eventually Sun did as NFS. 
Do you ever wonder if that software is still running anywhere today? Oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure in some government agency, there's a machine somebody hasn't touched in uh, 30 years. It's not on the internet, so nobody needs to update it. And, uh, you know, I, I suspect it's still running somewhere. That is amazing. And is this, so uh, this isn't in the day, this is all real mode, correct? Oh, yeah. Yes. So this is all effectively 16-bit disassembly. That's correct. Not a lot of registers to work with. No, no. And, uh, you know, we had to do this in, uh, you know, a few number of bytes. Most machines at that time had only, were sold with 64K bytes of RAM. So you couldn't, you couldn't waste anything. So I did a simple IDP UDP implementation, all in assembler in about two and a half K. Whoa. So that thing would fly today. No, no, no TCP. That would have been, that, I couldn't have done that in that. In TCP the, in would have been space. tough. That, that would have been harder. Oh, with those constraints. Simple IP UDP and, uh, you know, ARP and, and uh, reverse ARP all in about two and a half K. That's amazing. And what kind of machine were you talking to? Uh, this was a... 3B2? Uh, 3B2, exactly. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah, yeah wow. it, was, it was the uh, AT&T 3B2. Uh, a machine that if memory serves correctly, stacks grew up on the 3B2. Is that right? I, that, that's lost for time. I, the, the I, don't, only, I don't remember. <laughs> the only reason I say that is because I ripped out some code that, rely, that, that we historically allowed stacks to grow up or down. And I determined that the only reason that upward stack growth was there was for the 3B2 back I, in the day. I, I can believe that. <laughs> right. it, 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 was, it was a fun machine. It was very Unix and C-centric. That detail, I I'm luckily have forgotten. That's right. So was that machine the, like the favorite machine that you ever owned or did you have another one? Oh, machines I've owned. I can't say that the machines I've owned, I've ever had a favorite. I enjoyed working on a Xerox Sigma 7 when I was in school, which is a great computer, impressive for what you could do with it with, with of course, you know, very little, uh, you know, basic hardware performance. Wow. So what was the Sigma 7 based on? Sigma 7 was uh, the Scientific Data Systems was the company that developed the architecture. They sold that to Xerox. It was a 32-bit machine. A 32-bit machine. That's, that is very early for 32 bits. That's yeah, like that is a an early 32-bit machine, early 70s uh, development had, I think about, Probably a megabyte of memory. It uh -huh. used a, a a fixed head disk, a drum, what they called a drum, and could support you know 40, 50 uh, terminal users. So you know, they're 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 people were limited by the speed of the input device. So you're typing on a, a teletype 110. So no, nothing was very fast. It was the university shared resource. It, that's amazing. So, you think that that machine had a, a megabyte of RAM. And then a decade later, you're buying a machine with 64K of RAM. I mean, it just, it shows you how, I mean, how dichotomous computing was in terms of the computers that you would use versus the computers you could buy. Of course. It's amazing. It's almost interesting, like, then how people kind of just consume resources without even thinking about them today. Well, I, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a commonly held attitude, I think, that we, we view, I mean, how, especially growing up in that era, you must view us as being just profligate users of everything Oh, today. of course, terribly wasteful. But, <laughs> right. uh, but, you know, it's sort of a lost skill and maybe it should be lost. I mean, we used to, I, I remember when, you know, people would grade papers when I was in school. If, if somebody could show that you could eliminate 20 bytes, well, that was, you lost half a grade. I mean, because every byte mattered and, and today it, today it doesn't. I feel like there's still pockets where every byte matters. Of course. When you're dealing with obviously large amounts of data, then the representation of each individual uh, data element 
clearly every byte matters. But, you know, when you're, when you're writing a piece of functional code, uh, it's more, I'd say, readability and your ability to uh, maintain and, and, and enhance that code is more important as to whether you achieve the utmost uh, uh, compact representation. And so was the Sigma 7, was that your first real big machine that you used? It was, yes. I then moved from there to the uh, PDP-10. Ooh, I have a PDP-11 replica inside and then a PDP-8, but not a 10. Well, uh, I used the 8 as well. In fact, I did. I worked on the 8 in paper tape. Uh, oh, that's cool. And that, that, was, that was also an interesting uh, challenge to do your development of paper tape. And the PDP-10, uh, you know, a 36-bit machine and... Uh, it was an interesting, interesting beast. I actually uh, used to have fun uh, coding the PDP-10 not using the assembler because I, for some reason that I can't explain, it may, it may have been, in fact, it, it may be indicative of, of, of a social defect, but I thought it was fun to learn the machine language and code without the assembler. So I just well, open up an Octal editor and could write some fairly... You know, simple programs. That's good. I, okay, a I, useless trick. And and again, it, it, you know, if somebody, if I saw someone doing that today, I, I would be worried. Uh, I was <laughs> just going to ask: Is fun. everything done with an assembler today? Is it unheard of that you would not use an uh, assembler? Certainly, when Jeff was saying I didn't use the assembler, I was saying, "Wow, you're using a higher level language." In but no, it's like he was actually going lower. <laughs> so the, the the assembler takes the actual instructions to the CPU and encodes them in the binary representation. What Jeff was manipulating was actually the binary re representation, albeit. Well, in I wrote it in Octal. Right. Yes. Please, I'm not a primate here. I mean, obviously, I would work in Octal, not binary. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, that's, a, that's amazing. And so you must have had the opcode. I mean, you probably still know some of those opcodes. No, I've, I've, I don't. I can. I luckily have forgotten that. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a finite amount I think you can store, and uh, that, that register has been cleared and reused many times. <laughs> Thank God, right? It's been, it's been so. All right, so you were on the PDP, and how many years did you work on the PDP? Oh, just while I was in school for you know two three years. And w where did you head to after school? Oh, I went to work at uh, Honeywell. I spent a year at Honeywell's Large Inf Information Systems Division. And this was the old General Electric uh, computer company. Their system was a 36-bit machine as well, a real memory system at the point that I joined, though they were working on, on trying to add a, a virtual memory capability. Interesting machine. It had 6-bit bytes, 8-bit bytes, and 9-bit bytes. So you could choose... Uh, you know how many uh, how many characters to pack into a uh, in, into a word, and of course it meant that you know each piece of software had to identify its conventions oh for uh, for for uh, byte encoding, which wasn't that unusual in the day. We had both ASCII and EBCDIC in use at the same time. Right, uh, EBCDIC is probably worth explaining. I know Steve, there's no way you know EBCDIC. Of course, I hope not. <laughs> no, I have no idea. What's EBCDIC? It's it's a uh, character encoding that IBM uh, was using through, I guess, the fifties and sixties. It's it is uh, decimal encoded as binary. Whoa. Yeah, and it's it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, uh, but we still have the, it lives on today because the x eighty six still has instructions for for binary encoded decimal. It's kind of crazy. Oh, very good. <laughs> ASCII add before multiply, my favorite x86 instruction. <laughs> so, and the, for the nine bit words, what was that, the, the nine bit bytes, excuse me, what was that to allow? What, was that a parity bit? Well, or? if they fit evenly into 36, so you get four characters in the, uh, right. in, in the word. Eight, eight didn't go in as quite as nicely. <laughs> so, uh, and then, but the six bit, of course, uh, you would use only, you 
It would fit in the 36 bit. And so what Honeywell machine is this at this point? This was, oh, you know, I don't remember the model numbers. It was, it was a Honeywell mainframe, uh, ran the GCOS operating system, implemented in 7400 LS logic. 7400 LS? Yes. What, what does that denote? That's the, if, if you remember the uh, Texas Instruments TTL data book, uh, the yellow uh, sort of, um, sort of, yellowish uh, binder that in fact, you don't have one on your shelf here. So I don't one, have one on my shelf. No, that's I've, I've got one, intense you, manual in me right now. You, that's one you need to buy. And it, it uh, these were a series of small scale and medium scale integration components. And most machines in the 70s were built uh, out of this logic family. So you had 7400, 7400S, which was a faster implementation, Schottky implementation, and then the low power Schottky. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know Honeywell was ever in the computer business. Well, Not because I think of Honeywell as, you know, thermostats and, and uh, particularly the family business being in heating and air conditioning, uh, ascribed them to that, but they were a computer company. They were definitely a computer company and uh, they were the H in the bunch. So at one point, the computer industry was IBM in the bunch, Burroughs, Univac, NCR, Control Data, and Honeywell. That's oh, correct. Wow. Got like it. Fang today. I, I, the Fang today. Yes. Okay. That, yes. That's exactly right. 1970s Fang is the bunch. That's cool. And of course, all of those companies are more or less out of the computer business. But so Honeywell, and actually Honeywell, although this would probably predate you, the H200, I imagine, would predate you at Honeywell. They made an IBM 1401 clone um, called the H200, which was transistorized and forced IBM to really get off. The, IBM was, was very slow on a transistorized 1401. Uh, that's a machine I wasn't familiar with. I stayed <laughs> at Honeywell a little less than a year. And uh, it was interesting. They'd given me a uh, relocation bonus when I left school. And I, once I understood the state of the company and where, the, where, where, where this organization was going to be going, I decided to calculate how much money could I save and how, how was my, my relocation bonus being amortized because each month I owed them a little bit less. And when the two lines crossed, I, I left. You left. So yes. you decided pretty quickly you did not want to work at Honeywell. The year I was there, they were uh, building a current mode logic uh, version of their architecture, so CML. At the time, uh, ECL was was a more broadly accepted technology, higher performance than uh, 7400 LS. However, this was to be their first microcoded machine. Oh, interesting. So the the CML implementation was very expensive for them. They had their own foundry. They're building their own uh, their their own chips. The uh, it, the the microarchitecture was ten times faster than uh, the previously directly. Uh, implemented logic. Unfortunately, you had about 10 micro instructions in each target instruction <laughs> loop. So the effect was a machine that cost an order of magnitude more Interesting. Uh, and delivered exactly the same performance. Interesting. So you may be worth explaining microcode because I feel microcode is something that we don't really have an analog of that today. I mean, um, I know I'm looking at Steve, who I'm sure... Yeah, I can come up with a couple, but <laughs> I'd like him to answer. <laughs> Oh, microcode is simply you have a uh, a low-level interpreter that is interpreting the target instruction set of the machine. And that was a very common implementation uh, technique. And so it's probably still used underneath. I mean, it is course, used underneath, used. Uh, under the hood. For, you yes. know, x86 obviously has its own microcode yes, underneath. Of course. But you can't write that microcode today. That's correct. And you couldn't then either. Interesting. Uh, but the implementers of this system architecture were implementing the target instruction set in micro-instructions about 10 instructions per target instruction. So 
uh, it was all, it all netted out to approximately the same performance. The same performance. Interesting. And so, and you were actually writing microcode at that point or? No, I was uh, on a uh, architecture team that really didn't do much of anything. I, I was, got it. I, I, I was just simply calculating Calculate when, when my two, when my two <laughs> lines would cross, <laughs> there you, go. you know, my, my, uh, my savings and my debt crossed and I was, I was off to Intel. Oh, that's, yes. Intel was the next stop. Yes, it was. That's dope. So what did you work on at Intel? Intel uh, used to be a large producer of memory. And they had, you know, they produced DRAM. Not all the DRAM was good. Every, every uh, process has some waste. Intel was producing a, a disk emulator for IBM mainframes called the 3805. And this was, it had a very interesting memory uh, controller that could deal with chips that were partially correct and mask that. So it was a great place to put, to, to pack in memory, possibly memory that you weren't able to sell at uh, retail huh. and, uh, and then deliver a solid state disk, something that sat on an IBM channel and provided, wow. uh, you know, provided better, presumably better performance. What was interesting was that it didn't. It was actually oh. significantly slower than the fixed head disk. And I interviewed at Intel and being, you know, and they told me about this project and they said that they had, you know, a serious issue. They had a backlog of a quarter of a billion dollars for these systems. And every one they'd shipped had been returned for being slower than the physical disk that the solid state device was emulating. That's bad. Yeah, oh, that's, that's not so good. bad. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and it didn't make any sense to me. So being, you know, somewhat cocky, you know, 22 year old, I said, oh, I could fix that. Right. I mean, I knew it was, you know, just maybe there was sloppy code. I didn't know, but I very confidently said I could deal with that. And and, that well, I went back to finish my two weeks at uh, Honeywell and I looked in the, uh, in, in a industry rag called Computer World, which is still around, but uh, was very popular in the late seventies. And I saw an interview with the head of, uh, of, of this group, the fellow I just interviewed with. And it, and in there, he said, well, you know, yes, it's true. We have this backlog, but we have a solution in hand and we're going to be shipping it in a month. So I said, well, maybe they don't need me. I called him up and I said, yeah, <laughs> I, read, I just read this. In. Exactly. I was the solution. He, I said, are you sure you need me? It wow. sounds like you've solved this. In the I last definitely week. need you. You are the solution. <laughs> wow. I've heard of a PR crisis. And I hadn't really drank a lot before then, but for the next two weeks, I needed right. a little bit of help getting back, getting to sleep at night. Oh, I, can I, I wasn't sure that I really could follow through. You renegotiated your offer. Uh, <laughs> and what happened? What'd well, you find? I showed up and uh, looked at this machine, scratched my head for a bit and stayed up all night with it for uh, probably two or three weeks with a logic analyzer, trying to find out why this, you know, simple 8086, you know, instruction path was slower than the, uh, than this, Physical disk that should be easy to beat. Turned out it was one instruction. It was a uh, repeat move string byte that oh. was used to reinitialize a condition code table for the channel control program. And just, they didn't catch the one instruction. That was, that was adding sufficient extra time that it made it slower than the fixed head disk. There were two factors in play there. One, their control path was slower. But the other was they didn't understand how the operating systems used a fixed head disk. They figured the, the you know, they knew what the rotational latency was. They knew the switching time is close to zero. So they assumed that the average performance would be approximately half the rotational latency. But of course, IBM uh, has had, had had many years to perfect this technology, and the OS is sorted. 
the sector. So the control program would organize the requests so that it would be doing, you know, position one, position two, position three. So assuming, let's say there were three tracks, three block positions on a single track, uh, they would always go, let's say, modulo three and, and order them zero, one, two, zero, one, two. And then the other operating systems, they have one time-sharing system that used a little bit different strategy, but also was able to effectively get the, the rotational latency to close to zero. They just they, they put in some spacer records uh, that handled the head-switching time and the, and the time for the control program so that the effective rotational latency was zero. And the folks at Intel, who are great in microcontrollers and, and, and in process technology, they, that wasn't their specialty. They didn't know what operating system designers at IBM had, had cooked up. So they, they set their target too low. The product was simply released before they'd achieved it what was a a useful performance uh, metric for their, uh, for their customer. Wow. Wow. That is insane. Leading to a quarter billion dollars. There's so much in there. That's mind blowing. (laughs) We're going to have to go back and unpack that a little bit. So first of all, it's a solid state disc at it. This is, I mean, what we now call an SSD, but this is long before solid state discs were. This is 1979. And so was it, but it was still volatile, I assume. Yes. It, okay. it had a motor generator. So the wall power was plugging a, a rotating generator that, or, or a motor that was running a generator and provided generated power uh, to the memory. So that was to avoid you know, potential corruption from, uh, from, from glitches in wall power. That's cool. So this thing was loud. Oh, yeah. This was data center equipment. You weren't supposed to care. And then on an actual power failure, what would it, would it, did it have any way of getting that out to to non-volatile storage? Oh, well, the assumption was the environment it would be had had battery backup. So this would carry it through uh, those transitions. Wow. Interesting. What was the capacity of this thing? That I can't tell you. This is again, that, re- it, that register was no filled worries. and reused yeah, many I, I, years I, I, ago. No problem. No, it's just so amazing. And then I latch on to the same thing you latch on to, Steve, about the backlog. Quarter of a billion dollars of backlog. One instruction set led to a quarter billion dollars of backlog. Well, they eventually delivered against that backlog. So, you know, they were held up for a number of months while trying to understand this performance issue. And again, it was two-sided. One is they'd, they had set the release criteria, uh, too high. So they were thinking, you know, three, four milliseconds uh, was going to be fine when in fact they needed to be, you know, a fraction of a millisecond due to the uh, the strategies that the OS was using in, in, in scheduling IO. And then uh, they were also too slow simply due to repeat move string byte. Right. And so, <laughs> and so Steve, for context, it may help to know that this is an instruction, a single instruction that can do a lot of work. In this case, 256 bytes at a time. Where it could have been 128 words, this was a 16-bit machine. That would have already sped it up. But the truth was, only a half a dozen entries in the uh, in that table would typically need to be reset following a single I/O request. So the way the table was used was, given the instructions that were in the channel program, the there were only certain instructions that were legal for the next instruction. And then following that instruction, there were other instructions that were legal. So this was determining whether the opcodes that were used in the IBM channel program uh, were legal at that point in the program. At the end of the IO request, you would have to reset that back to an initial state. Clearly you could track what changes had taken place and then reset those half a dozen invalid operations uh, at the end of the request. That's interesting. Is there is there an analog to something that you've seen or that we've seen 
recently that would that would map to that kind of low level single instruction set that that had so many so far reaching implications of single instruction just to be clear yeah, single one instruction it, yeah not even instruction set but it's a single instruction that was uh i mean a single instruction can still do a lot of damage today i think it can but this was somewhat unique we were dealing with slower memory systems so anything that moved uh, 256 bytes of memory had a pretty significant delay for someone reading assembler code you know an instruction looks like every other instruction uh they they seem fairly equivalent you don't recognize that there is a two order of magnitude potential disparity between one instruction and the next one that followed it in the listing. And I think that's what threw the team that was working on. So you had a pretty successful first two weeks of work. <laughs> oh, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I have to admit, uh, the, the, I was like two or three in the morning and I'm staring at a logic analyzer and I'm tracking it down and suddenly... I get to that page in the listing and there's a repeat move string bite and I smile. Oh, that must have been glorious. Smile, you <laughs> smiled. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, like, exactly. Yeah. I, I, was pretty, uh, I, was, I was pretty excited. It took about 15 minutes to code up, uh, you know, the alternate implementation. And, uh, you know, I, I got to sleep that night without without a little bit of cognac. Well, that <laughs> is amazing. Um, and the I can if you did not emit a howl, I'm impressed with your self-control. <laughs> um, I've been known to howl over much smaller fines. So two bits of, of interesting context there. One, so channel programs are something, I mean, Jess, do you, know, you probably don't know what a channel program no. is. Yeah, so this is the way, I mean, you want to explain what a channel program is, Jeff? Well, uh, the IO is performed by a second computer that uh, had an interface to the mainframe and executed simple programs for for doing I.O. And they could deal with tape operations and could, you know, knew the intricacies of tape, but you didn't program the I.O. controllers directly from the main instruction set. You'd create a program and deliver that to the, uh, to the channel controller. And this is something that's coming back a little bit. I mean, not channel programs per se, but the idea of having compute spread away and, and yes. kind of pushing compute elsewhere to actually so when you look at like all the offload that we do right on on the on the NICs, for example smart NICs are kind of a modern channel program yes, albeit it is. in a d different form uh, the other thing that's interesting is the is the CISC versus risk so if you've the complete instruction set versus a reduced instruction set and so what what Jeff found was a single instruction doing a lot of work and this is predated risk obviously risk is it wouldn't happen for another couple of years right that's true. But what we did at that point, because removing that instruction uh, certainly moved the product forward and they were able to start making deliveries, it still could have been faster and, and wasn't meeting full potential of the architecture. So we re-implemented the control program using the AMD 2900 series uh, logic family. So we created a bit slice processor and we're able to achieve much better performance now, than we could with an 8086. And the AMD 29K is an early risk. I mean, that is a risk. Yes, it's, it, well, this was the 2900 series. But not the 29K, uh, okay. Yes, and so this was a bit slice model where you could really define, you had a you had a opcode controller, but then you had, you could choose the register sets separately and you could almost design your own instruction set out of the 2900 series. That was an amazing architecture. I would like to point out there's an AMD 29K manual okay. about eight inches behind you. you. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm just very, this is the- Well, the, I, maybe I hope I'm not, I'm remembering it correctly, no, but it was I'm, 2900 I, versus I, I 29K. Never, I, no, I never programmed it. It just- it it maybe, was, maybe it's the same logic family, so. Well, but I always, I mean, my read on it was it was always viewed as this real great step forward in CPU design that never really caught on. Is that, it, a, is that was, a fair read? It, well, uh, there were actually quite a few target 
machines that were implemented in, in the AMD family. So they use the bit slice processor for the micro instructions and you, and then implement the target instruction uh, with that logic family. It was an interesting architecture. My role in the project, I wrote uh, the assembler that the others on the team used in order to write instructions for this 2900 family uh, instruction set. And that was a, uh, a fun process. You know, the, because I, I knew who my target audience of developers were. So I would put, not I wouldn't call them Easter eggs. I, 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 I would put targeted error messages in that scolded the developers based on <laughs> my knowledge of their habits. <laughs> Can you get, do you remember any examples of, uh, of, of uh, a particular developer that was scolded in this way? Oh, one fellow, uh, I don't remember what his habit was, but I, I, I knew he would, he would eventually do it. And I just addressed him by name and, you know, said, you know, to to err is human, but you're a programmer. Something, something to that effect. <laughs> That's and, good. That is great. It, 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 people were working on uh, on what's called an Intel development system. These were single user workstations. So you don't have, your machine is not network connected. So to have the tool that you've been using for a month or two suddenly address you by name <laughs> uh, is a particularly <laughs> unnerving, unnerving experience. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, in a network connected computer, your first thought is, is I've been hacked. Right, and, uh, but you know this is this is a workstation sitting on your desk, uh, connected to nothing. That is so. beautiful. That is amazing. That is giving me ideas. I was gonna say <laughs> I, that is a, that is amazing. I know. I love the the, <laughs> the customer error messages. <laughs> but you got you know you got to think way in advance. Uh, that's that's very impressive. You knew the the error messages that the errors that people were gonna hit. We're gonna take a a quick break, um, and then uh, we will be back with with more Jeff Rothschild. On the Metal is brought to you by the Oxide Computer Company. Wait, did you say computer company, Jess? Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> but wait a minute, everyone runs on the public cloud. Jeff Bezos uh, owns no. and operates every computer on the planet. Why would anyone start a computer company? That is so not true. I have spent a bunch of time talking to folks who are still running on-premises, and actually, like, the consensus among all of them is just a feeling of neglect, because everyone thinks that, like, everything is moving to the public cloud, but it's not. If you're still running on-premises, it's because you haven't heard of the cloud, right? No. There are really good reasons for running on-premises still. For security, for latency, strategic reasons for your business. Wow, the people running on-premises must feel like everyone has ignored them. They do, indeed. So if this is you, please head on over to our website, offside.computer, sign up for our mailing list, and we would love to get in touch and hear your stories. We acknowledge that you exist and you've got some really hard technical problems that we're solving. Oxide.computer, come join us. All right, welcome back. We are we are all sitting slack jawed, listening to <laughs> some terrific stories of the hardware software interface from Jeff Rothschild. So, Jeff, you're talking about customizing error messages for in your the assembler that you. Well, the fun thing with the assembler was that uh, we were trying to squeeze every cycle out of the machine. So the the only piece of novel technology that I had in there was that I could look forward in the assembly program and see, for example, when a condition code would get used. And I might see that it was used in the next instruction. So I would increase the time for the current instruction to allow that condition code to settle through the ALU and then be settled in the condition code. Where if the result of a arithmetic operation was two or three instructions later, then I could start the next instruction without any additional delay. So it was sort of pipeline yeah, right. optimized. Yeah, it really was. That's a, that's amazing. And, and this so is, that was fun to do. So what would happen if your assembler didn't make that optimization? What would happen? Would well, they, you would have had to have, you would have had to have default. Well, if if you 
set everything too short, then you would have a test and the test may give the result the wrong result because the condition code hadn't propagated through the uh, through the ALU. Wow. So the assembler is actually load-bearing here. The assembler is, is responsible for correctness. That's correct. The assembler, and of course, in modern processors, these this type of instruction scheduling and and uh, variable delays are all done by the micro-instruction set. So, but this was done with the in the assembler. Wow. That is scary. I mean, that, I mean, do you think your assembler had any bugs in it that were uh, found the hard way? I've never written anything that didn't have bugs in it. So the odds <laughs> are yes. <laughs> but just, I mean, debugging that must have been a challenge. Uh, well, clearly you could start by putting in very conservative values and then you'd always have a test version. So you could make the, the worst case assumption and then determine whether that had, in, whether your optimizations had introduced a problem. And so we're, are you at Intel at this time? This is at Intel, working oh, on, on AMD. AMD. Yeah, just so working, using yeah. AMD okay. I just stuff. wanted to like yeah. check myself. I don't know if anyone else had the same, like, I didn't minute. even like put the two and two together until right. I was like, wow, that's In weird. Fact, our whole team uh, had to go to AMD headquarters, which was just down the street and, you know, take a training course on, on the AMD bit slice architecture. And the in the AMD training, they asked everyone to say who they worked for. And of course, <laughs> it was all various countries building control companies, building control processors. And they got to the Intel group and it was one person from Intel, two, second person from Intel, third from Intel. And I think uh, the last member of the group said, uh, you know, so-and-so from Intel, corporate espionage. <laughs> <laughs> Put it right out there. That's good. Uh, are Intel and AMD even considered to be competitors at this time? Or of they, course they, oh, they are. Oh, they are. Okay. Oh, so, they're, they're, I mean, that's the, you know, they are the only competitors in that space. Did, but, but at that time, they're competitors. They didn't compete for the, uh, for in, AMD did not have an x86 uh, processor in 1981 right. or 1980. But and does Intel even think of themselves as a microprocessor company in 1981? Oh, of course. Intel oh, it did. Okay. Oh, okay. yeah. They, Intel, they Intel had had, you know, their, their, 40, 80, four, their 8080 and, and right? yeah. and then the 8086 and 8088. And the, but this is still pre-PC. This is post-PC. Post-PC. Or okay. about the time that the PC had come out, which was an 8088-based right. machine initially. And that, I assume, changed everything inside of Intel. I would assume, maybe not. Yeah, they became a PC company. Right. So were you working at Intel when you bought the PC? I had left Intel. Okay. Uh, so I had gone off on my own. And, well, but it was interesting. Intel had the, had the potential to have been a PC company. The workstations that I made reference to a few moments ago were PCs. A, an Intel development station ran a MS-DOS-like operating system. And, you know, all of these were influenced by RT-11. And so you, if you were a user of a DEC RT11, you would recognize many aspects of the, of the OS interface and, and the software development process on the machine. Intel was selling these at ten dollars or $15,000 a seat. Right. They weren't interested in you know, undercutting their, their existing market. But <laughs> I think if they'd understood the potential for personal computing, they could have rebranded that machine and dropped it on the market. It was not that fundamentally different than an IBM PC. It was blue. Other than that, it was the same thing. Interesting. And and it was running, so what was the operating system it was running? Was it an Intel author? It was, it was an Intel operating system, okay. but very similar to what you would have found on a like an RT11 system. Right. Uh, was the slash pointing the right direction? Was it? I, that I can't tell you. I, you know, I'm still <laughs> trying to figure out where humanity went so wrong and the, and the, the Ford slash somehow fell over and went, I, I guess it was CPM. Right? What did it used to be? It was on, on Windows and DOS. It's a backslash, not a forward slash okay. to delineate path names. And 
on Unix, famously, it was a forward slash. And that was, of course, uh, a challenge in building this uh, DOS to Unix file server, was dealing with the equivalence of uh, mm. forward and backward slashes. And then had to deal with a number of the uh, of differences in in semantics between the the Windows uh, and or the, I should say the, the DOS the right? DOS environment right. and the Unix environment. I made a mention to the file control block on DOS that programs would do I/O after they close the file. Well, that doesn't work on Unix. <laughs> so uh, if you have a simple if your server program, which is serving I/Os on the Unix uh, side, uh, does a file close, all the context for that close is gone. But I had to implement a uh, cache of previously open files to accommodate in this. order so that oh when somebody, God. when a read came in on the old file descriptor, I would have you know I'd be able to uniquely identify it was for that file descriptor and then reopen the file. And would this be considered a bug in the? I mean, w w was the interface that you were allowed to do this deliberate, or I, I oh, was suspect it, just... it was deliberate? Some of the top selling applications of the day, like DBase, uh, made you know common use of this. They closed the file, and there were some advantages to closing the file. I assume in cleanliness and not be able to flush buffers, but then continue to do uh, reads and writes on the file. So what handle do they have back to operate on that file? Do they have an FD equivalent? It's just or? An, like an address, okay. file control block. But is that address reference? How is this safe at any speed? Is what you I'm know, trying to grab my mind around. I don't, sorry. I don't think it was. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this, was this was a real memory system. If you wrote over the file control block, it would have random information in it. You do an IO on it, you're changing random spots on the disk. So and the, the machine the, would reboot, would course. do a triple fault, or you'd just get random corruption and or then, anything and else. Then, and then you'd reinstall, yes. Uh, this was not a, uh, a a protected memory system. One other fun bug uh, in building the, uh, the the PC interface uh, product was that uh, it was on a uh, DOS system. Uh, you can truncate a file uh, by uh, writing to. Oh, actually, I remember this the, the the how this worked, but you would be able to. Uh, write zero bytes to an arbitrary location in the file. I think that truncated. Okay. And uh, so being able to, and that's one reason people would write on a closed file. They would, they would know that a portion of that file was unused space because they compacted it, for example. And then they would do a zero byte write after the last byte that was in use. And that would truncate the size of the file. And so you had to honor that. Oh, we had to. Well, the first implementation of that on uh, on Unix was to rewrite the file and just write it up to the point where the truncate occurred, and then you just don't write. You'd close it. But of course, uh, now the performance of, is terrible. Well, it was particularly terrible if the application you were supporting is one that was going through a compaction algorithm and wanted to be back in uh, in clean state after each phase of the compaction algorithm. Well, it may be a thousand phases in compaction. So there'd be a thousand of these truncates. Oh my gosh. And now you're copying the file over itself, basically copying to a new file and then, you know, renaming and deleting the first one and then doing it again a thousand times on the Unix side. So some very simple, fast operations on DOS were taking days uh, on the Unix side. So uh, we had uh, Bell Labs implement a uh, truncate operation. Uh, That's which, truncate. which is still there. Yeah, yes. F truncate is still right. there. And so F truncate was added in order to support this behavior on DOS. Oh my wow. God, that's the wow. origin story of F truncate. <laughs> that's correct. What is F truncate today? F truncate is is the Unix interface to truncate a file, but it's a, it, it's explicit about it. And what Jeff is pointing out is prior to the introduction of, of F truncate, 
there was no way to truncate a file. Yeah, you'd have crazy. to you'd have to rewrite it. I mean, you could open it. Oh, trunk, but I'm not that exi- that might not have existed. I mean, f truncate certainly. No, this was why it was added. It was because uh, that's amazing. You know. And AT&T was sponsoring this work. Right. So on the 3B2. On the 3B2. And so they added the truncate operation uh, because, you know, closing a DBase file took took days. And is this, uh, let's see, is this system three or is this, is this like seventh edition? Where are we this here? This would have been 81 or 82. Maybe. Okay. Right in that time frame. Like so, probably 83. I think that would have been system three. So we're still, sorry, Jess. Jess is still, we're still five years before Jess is born. So <laughs> we're, they're, 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 we're still pre-Jess, but we're uh, we're definitely post me. Um, but certainly not, but not on Unix. So that's, a, that is amazing. That is the origin story of F-Trunkit is. That is, that is, that is actually amazing. That, I've used that a lot. F-Trunkit, yeah. yeah. I can probably only lay claim to one other Unix uh, system call. And this was for a project I did a few years later for a company called, I think it was Power Office. They were a division of ICL, which was a British computer yes. company, International right. Computers Limited. Yes. And this was a group based in Virginia. And they called me out because they had a performance problem. And they said it was uh, there was a virtual memory issue. The system was swapping. It was, you know, over committing memory. So I went ahead and just, you know, put a logic analyzer on it, uh, which is how I used to debug things. And quickly determined that, no, this was not a virtual memory issue. They were simply out of CPU instructions. But why were they out of CPU instructions was the interesting part. It was simply the cost of handling every keystroke. This was an office automation system. And when the engineers developed it, they typed at one speed, but the customers were much more talented and could type three or four times faster. So a system that was sold as a 20-user system was only supporting seven users because these seven users really could type. And they could hit the 50, you know, characters, uh, 50 words a minute. And the, you know, the engineers uh, developing it simply could not. I mean, our mere mortals, we were not able to type at those speeds. <laughs> so uh, the challenge was, well, do you optimize the trap interface or simply handle less characters? So I remember thinking about this problem and said, okay, what's, what's, what you really need is, is better line editing. Because really what all you're doing is echoing a character back 90% of the time. And then when a special character is hit that goes into the control language of the word processor or you uh, reach the end of line, then you needed to do something a little special. But otherwise, you could have, and since they built their own terminals, you could have an intelligent terminal that could do local edit, local echo. But the only choices we had for uh, terminal I.O. were cooked or raw. Uh, so I proposed gourmet mode. And there were a ver- few versions of Unix that were shipped for a number of years that had gourmet mode as a uh, as as a uh, uh, TTY line discipline. I was going to say, so this is a different line discipline, and you would indicate that I'm using gourmet mode. And you'd specify what the escape characters were. What were the characters that would cause you to move out of echo mode and back into a raw mode? And then what the condition was for going back into this uh, local echoing mode. That's but gourmet mode has been lost. Yes, I mean, do we I, still have gourmet mode? I, I have no idea. All right, I, well, I suspect. I hope it's been lost. <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't. You, well, it just it didn't. It doesn't necessarily benefit anyone today. I mean, right. These, you these, these are not the uh, the ability to handle uh, keystrokes through the trap interface is no longer uh, a constraint. On uh, no longer a limiter on right. on uh, our CPU performance is no longer the limiter based on the number of uh, number of keystrokes we can handle. Right. That's that is amazing. Yeah, I'd have to because so much of that stuff did survive, and then of course long outlives its original intent, and then can kind of come haunt us at the 
in, in modern times. Yeah, it, I think I saw it in System 5 Unix at one point, but I don't think it's made its way into Linux and more modern versions. Because truthfully, uh, F-Truncate actually caused me a very painful bug where I actually, because there are multiple ways to truncate a file in Unix, O-Trunk being the common one, F-Truncate being a lot less common, and I made a modification to the kernel and I missed the F-Truncate code path and as a result had this really... Uh, nasty bug because I had missed F truncate. So, uh, well, I will indirectly apologize. No, no, I, no <laughs> apology required. It was my mistake for missing it, but it's just interesting at how these abstractions are are added. Uh, so, with gourmet mode, did you implement? I mean, did, did you interacted directly with the group to to go implement gourmet mode, or how did you implement it? Uh, we worked with uh, the kernel group. Uh, within ICL, and uh, and they implemented uh, the uh, the gourmet mode handling in the uh, in uh, the TTY uh, controller, and also in their uh, in their terminals. In their terminals, and so was, does ICL have their own Unix at this point? Uh, they had their own Unix version. They had, okay. a few, they had a few pretty solid engineers who were supporting uh, kernel development. So they're taking AT and T code and and running it or modifying it effectively. Yes. Wow. Uh, where after ICL? Yeah, was it yeah. Veritas after that? Well, ICL was just a, a one-month assignment. I, okay. I just okay. I just parachuted in because they had a product problem. Because they had just yeah. done a press release stating that they had a big problem. That, <laughs> that, that, that they had a solution for yeah. that was... You know, uh, one, of the, one of the folks from Intel uh, who I'd worked with earlier was running that group. And uh, he had a problem and you know, he said, okay, this worked once before, so... Uh, I got that uh, contract. I was just contracting. Uh, that's great. And uh, then, uh, yeah, where where next? I went to, well, I worked with a group called Locus Computing Corporation. So Locus was based in Santa Monica, California. It was a group that had spun out of UCLA, uh, run by uh, Jerry Popak, who's a professor at UCLA. The Locus is a distributed Unix, and it's a great, you can, you can read a lot about Locus today. Really? Wow. Yes. So uh, the, the team is still around. The they're not as a team today, but the many of the individuals who contributed to it are are still around, and they have uh, you know a tremendous. It was really a groundbreaking uh, product. So this was a fully distributed Unix. It it, it normalized and globalized all uh, identifiers, so process okay. identifiers, so file handles, uh, pipes, uh, references to uh, memory, actually to like memory segments, across a. A cluster, a cluster of machines. Of machines. Wow. And then you can migrate processes between machines. You were able to build, you know, a distributed software that behaved the same on multiple machines as it would on a single, mm. on a single node. When is this? This was early 80s, so 83, 84. Wow. wow. Locus was being that developed. is cool. Yeah. And it's a great project. The, that, that it, is... I think we, it, you might want to uh, dig into this with some of the... Uh, the the Locust team. I definitely want to think yeah. of it. I had yeah. never heard of it. I'm, uh, Char Charlie Klein is uh, living in, in, the, in the Bay Area. He's one of the early architects of, uh, of this product. They did a phenomenal job. They sold it to IBM. Okay. And IBM uh, did release it, but I think it was a very limited release and was really just an investigative system. So I'm trying to think of the distributed Unices and that is extremely early for any. I mean, I mean, this was this was a, uh, a definitely a groundbreaking system. A groundbreaking and, system, and, yeah, it must and, have been. And it was fascinating. And the work I did with this PC interface was done with Locus. Wow. So wow. They had they had the contract with AT and T. And this is over what uh, network substrate? I and mean, this is like so early that this was Ethernet. It's, it is this Ethernet. Was, okay. Yeah, coax uh, Ethernet. Okay. You know, ten. But uh, Ethernet itself is very young at this point. Right? Very young. Yes. 
That is just amazing. That is crazy because that's something that like people move processes from one computer to another still today, but like that in the 80s, that's cool. In fact, I remember when a new developer would join the team, they generally had never seen Ethernet before. And so I would explain, okay, here's this coax cable. We have a tap on the cable, but you always need to keep a terminator at the end of the line because if you don't, the ether leaks. <laughs> Ether that was that was that was the the the, the joke that this was oh, a, pres a pressurized cable. It. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you, so you need to keep it capped in order to keep that in the wire. That, that's that's great. And meanwhile, you've got someone who's terrified of taking the cap off because that's the ether right. is going to leak all everywhere. It's, <laughs> right? Yeah, Steve, don't worry. Yeah, it's, it's it fine. Okay? Yeah, it's okay. Right, I won't take the cap off. I mean, actually, please don't take the cap off. But um, so that's a, that's just an amazing system because you think I mean it's like just you're describing like the migration we do today. We yeah. do, but we don't share a process namespace across multiple machines. No, that, share... that's actually like super groundbreaking. It's so it is. Cool. I mean, it's um. So why uh, was it commercialized? It sounds like it was commercialized. Well, it was productized right, by okay. IBM. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know what level of commercial acceptance it had achieved, but yeah. it was. It certainly advanced the science forward, and a lot of people were influenced by. Uh, the work that Locus and IBM did there. Yeah, I can imagine. Where do those folks end up? What do they end up doing afterwards? Uh, ver systems? Various things. Yeah, but, uh, really great team, and uh, they, they did some great work. And that, again, all of this came out of out of UCLA. Out of UCLA. Yeah, that's just amazing. Again, I, I'm just going through and thinking of of, of uh, I mean, Amoeba. I don't know if you'd call it Amoeba was not a Unix like system, but another transparently distributed system. But Amoeba wasn't it for another. Almost decade, right? No, this, was, this, this, this was Unix. Yeah, so. that's actually Unix. And so it was, it was actually derived from the from yeah. AT&T Unix. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. We gotta get. We should get them on the podcast. Yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll we'll take care of that. Yeah, one. exactly. <laughs> I would love to get that. That would be really interesting and, and just interesting to to capture um, what the, I'm sure they must have pioneered a bunch of abstractions in yeah. order to. Yeah, that is that's wild. Um, so, all right, so you had an early view of what a distributed system could go do at a time when people were probably not really appreciating it. Uh, I think that was the issue. I don't think that it was necessarily a solving a problem people had at that point. Unix had far more uh, yes. substantive yes. Uh, limitations that were keeping it out of commercial computing. And in early 80s, Unix was starting to achieve success in uh, desktop uh, engineering workstations and in scientific computing. But it really wasn't until 1990 that we started to see widespread commercial adoption for, for enterprise computing, replacing the IBM, mid, IBM HP and DEC uh, mid-range uh, OSs. So, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about all the the ways in which I know Unix was immature in the early 80s, and to make that thing distributed is just that that that's that's amazing. Right, so, where does this find you then in the uh, in the 80s? I mean, what's uh... well, interestingly, I moved to uh, the Netherlands. And oh, had, cool. had some fun. Well, after we licensed uh, PC interface to Sun for NFS, I sort of could look forward a bit and saw a revenue stream for a number of years. I was I, I took a royalty on that product and uh, said, you know, if there's a time in your life to do some traveling, this might be it. I've worked with Philips Data Systems in uh, in uh, in Holland. That's actually where I met my wife, Marika. Oh, wow. And, uh, she, so we've moved back together. But when I returned to the U.S., it was to uh, restart a company that I had helped start before I left the country. And this was a firm that was originally called Tolerant Systems. And Tolerant was to be a fault-tolerant computer company. Uh, their tandem had, right, say, had yeah. made a name for itself and was achieving commercial success. And the feeling was is that if you could do this at a lower cost, uh, there'd be a market for a highly... Uh, available lower cost computer. And the notion was to build shoebox machines uh, that 
you would put multiples of them on a network and then you did some replication between them and you could achieve for environments that needed lower performance, but higher availability. This could be you know, like process control systems. This could be an interesting solution. For a variety of reasons, I, I actually decided to move to Europe at that point after enjoy, enjoy the fact that I knew I could be supported for a few years, uh, you know, be irresponsible for at least once in my life. And the, uh, and the company evolved uh, in a little bit different direction. They, it's, it's hard for people not to compete against uh, uh, others who are in the similar space and, and the dimension that we frequently compete on is performance. So uh, it got bigger and it got bigger and eventually was a multi-hundred thousand dollar per node uh, computer system. About the time people started to discover that fault-tolerant computing really wasn't a sector. Uh, people weren't buying these machines because they needed to have true nonstop capability. What they needed was better availability and data uh, integrity than a typical Unix system could offer. Uh, when I'm moving back to the U.S., I uh, was speaking with co-founders of the company, those I'd started the company with years earlier, and they, you know, were thinking that what they really needed was a software company that could provide uh, higher availability and a better file system uh, and data integrity than the Unix platform was capable of delivering in 1988. And this became Veritas Software. Uh, so we first created a company called Tolerant Software that was going to be fully owned by Tolerant Systems. And about a month later, Tolerant Systems came crashing down around us. So we, you know, we, wow. we took over the company effectively, and we were a five-person software company, and then started to build that up. But we didn't actually use a single line of code uh, from the Tolerant Systems product. Because what we needed was something... That was a very heavily customized version of, of Unix. This, we really did need to build something that used well-defined existing interfaces. So the System 5 VFS interface for the file system, uh, the block and character device interface for the logical volume manager, and to be able to deliver these in a format that the Unix system OEMs were capable of, of uh, receiving it. And that was the genesis of uh, Veritas Software. Wow, a Veritas software. That's so wow, cool. that's, that's so, cool. uh, so that it came out of this of this yes, other kind of failed effort. That, that, it, that's interesting. And was Tolerant making hardware? They were just making software. Tolerant was a hardware company. Okay. Oh, wow. Now, when we created, we were Tolerant Software for probably about six, seven months. Okay. And uh, we brought in a new CEO who who had been on the board of Tolerant Systems. And we decided he needed a full-time job, and that was Mark Leslie. Huh. Oh, and Mark, wow. Mark was a transformative CEO for us. And the first day on the job, he says, you know, guys, Tolerant has a bad name. You can't be tolerant anymore. We're intolerant. So, <laughs> we're going to be intolerant. We're going to be intolerant. <laughs> there you go. So we held a contest to come up with a new name. We all uh, 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 picked a name out of the hat, and uh, oddly— the one market suggested Weird. one. Oh, and, oh well, look at this. It's the name that I put in the Exactly. Hat. But it, <laughs> it's a good name. It was a great name. I mean, and it really is it, a good name. And so we, we became Veritas Software. And of course, it really did reflect on, you know, that we were trying, trying to, to provide do. a state yeah. of truth. Uh, and we built a logical volume manager, supported replication, and it even eventually supported software RAID 5. But more importantly, it allowed you to grow and shrink a volume dynamically. And our file system, the Veritas file system, didn't require a structural FSCK on a system restart. So you have to think back to 1989. Disks are getting bigger, so they're no longer five megabyte hard drives. We're now dealing with 50 and 100 megabyte hard drives. Uh, the structural FSCK that used to take 
35 minutes was sometimes taking 12 hours to complete. So imagine you deployed a Unix system in a mission-critical environment, let's say the paint shop at an auto factory, and that system has a glitch. It, it crashes. Uh, it happens sometimes. But the recovery from that crash could take you half a day. Well, clearly it's a non-starter. You never would have deployed the Unix system in that environment because it didn't meet the availability uh, needs of the application. Or imagine you had a system which ran out of space in one of its file systems, and now you need to add additional space. Well, how would you do that in 1989? And the answer was pretty simple. You back everything up to tape, you uh, repartition your disks, you uh, create a new file system, and then you recover from your backup Oh, because the backup and restore process is uh, error-prone, and you potentially are putting your data at risk simply to uh, change the capacity uh, and rebalance capacity between file systems. So this was a non-starter. It was the reason why Unix had not achieved its potential in the commercial market. And as, as a company, Veritas was there to enable OEMs to be able to deliver their systems into, the, into environments that required high data integrity and high availability. So... With uh, VXFS, uh, we use an intent log for all metadata changes to the file system. And on uh, system recovery, we reapplied the intents and recovered to a clean state without having to do a structural scan. So is this the of origin the of what's had, commonly known as RAID now? Uh, and this isn't RAID, but this is law, This is a, the first real commercial implementation of a log-structured file system. I mean, I think it's well, it wasn't a log-structured file system. Oh, it's just, no, okay. no. In fact, it was an extent-mapped um, file system. But the, uh, the metadata, the file system control information, was logged. So the okay. log didn't include actual changes to file contents. It is only metadata. It was strictly metadata. Okay. But it obviated the need for the structural FSCK. You could recover in seconds as opposed to hours. Right. And I had seen large systems that took two days to recover from a, uh, from a power failure. Uh, the, there were a lot of attempts that others had made to, to solve these problems by, let's say, having a, a clean bit that they would periodically set uh, <laughs> in the file system. <laughs> right. And then if the system crashed while the bit was still set clean, you could avoid the FSCK. The problem is that a busy, never set. it's never set. Yeah, right, in a exactly. busy system, there's always, an out, there's always IOs outstanding. So, in fact, you were still doing your structural FSCK. So, this was VXFS, the, the file system, and uh, VXVM, the logical volume manager. The logical volume manager did implement RAID, but most customers used it for uh, to be able to migrate and move storage. If you had a disk that was showing errors, you could take the... Uh, used slices on that disk and simply dragged them to other disks where there was free space. The storage would migrate. You would be notified when the disk was empty. You were free to replace it. Uh, previously, those had been major uh, disruptions on system availability. And, that, and that's actually still a challenge for us today is actually being able to, to remove a, a, a device that's in a, that's in a, either a RAID site or a Zevo or what have you is, is a challenge. So, and this is, RAID at this time is still mainly hardware. This is all, you guys were doing software RAID effectively. Well, there really wasn't much hardware doing RAID either at that point. Oh, really? No. Interesting. Okay. So this is, so, because RAID is what? I mean, that's David, David Patterson in, in the mid 80s, right? Early 80s. Yes. And uh, a fellow at CMU and blanking on his name now, that's terrible. Uh, but he had, uh, Garth, uh, I'll think of it in a moment, but he uh, he had written a, a sort of a groundbreaking paper on, on RAID as well. But the use of the Veritas uh, volume manager was largely uh, storage migration. Effectively, it's virtual memory for disk and offers you the same basic advantage that virtual memory mm -hmm. did on, on RAM. 
you no longer are dealing with physical extents, but they're logical extents, which uh, then you map onto physical extents, and you're free to change the physical locations of those logical extents without impacting availability of, uh, of the applications. All right, we're going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back with, with Jeff Rothschild. On the Metal is brought to you by the Oxide Computer Company, where we're going to try a new feature shamelessly ripped off of Reply All's Yes, Yes, No, where our boss, Steve Tuck, brings us a tweet we, he does not understand, and Jess and I try to explain it to him. Steve, do you have a tweet? I sure do. Go the for it. The tweet in question, UEFI Preboot Network Stack engaged the onboard NIC in such a way that it would write back DMA to particular physical memory pages sometime after control was passed to the bootloader. Corruption would occur somewhere in the user parts of the RAM disk. No idea. No idea. Jess, do you understand this tweet? So I understand definitely the part about the UEFI Preboot Networking Stack. But the part about DMA is in question marks. So it's like, I guess you're not really sure where that's You're going. overthinking it. I understand this tweet. Running on-prem is painful. This is dealing with an <laughs> awful, awful firmware bug. The firmware has overwritten part of the operating system in a way that is extremely painful to debug. So who do you go to in that case? Who do you go to? You definitely strangle one of your vendors. You strangle one of your vendors. And unfortunately, your vendor is a PC vendor because all of the existing <laughs> computer companies are selling personal computers. What we need is a new computer company. So this is just saying I'm an intense pain trying to run systems on premises. That's exactly what it's saying. Steve, what can someone do if they're intense pain running on premises? Well, if someone is running in intense pain on premises, what they should do is go over to oxide.computer to learn a little bit more about how we are going to take that pain away. Help is on the way. Join us at oxide.computer. You are not alone. All right, we are, we're back at On the Metal with uh, terrific tales from the hardware software interface. I feel I, I, this, I feel like it's gone for days. This is good. And Jeff, you're holding, I not. I, I, exactly, you're holding us just mesmerized. Um, so, um, I mean, Veritas, we were talking about Veritas, total groundbreaking technology. Um, and I mean, I, really year, tr truly years ahead of its time. It would take a long time for any of the other folks to really catch up to Veritas. It was pretty much the end of the decade before you started to see other logical volume managers and uh, file systems that preserve structural integrity uh, coming into the market. Yeah, and I can tell you being on the inside of one of those companies at Sun, where uh, Sun loved Veritas until- And hated Veritas. And, and hated Veritas. And it, it's, you know, we, we the, the frenemy relationship, not that uncommon, it, right? It, it absolutely was. And uh, as the years went by, really wanted to like, okay, we can, we do our own. And boy, there were a bunch of attempts at it and they were, uh, they they were not good. Um, and you saw, I think people really appreciated how much had been done and, and how hard it was to actually get all the stuff correct. And so we, the, uh, how long are you at Veritas? When do you? We started the software company in the end of 88, beginning of 89. Uh, I left uh, in 90, end of 94. So after, about a year after the IPO or back, just after the IPO. And uh, I, I left largely because uh, the internet was happening. And I was really excited about what you could do uh, that might be a lot of fun. 
I will admit that I, 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 there was a point where I didn't want to talk to people about device drivers anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, do, I used to do a, a bit of sales at Veritas, so I wore many hats. I did some prototype engineering. I uh, did some a little engineering management. I would do product management. And I would also grab a bag and go on the road. And uh, one day I was sitting in a meeting and uh, I think it was my fourth meeting that day talking about the B dev switch, C dev switch and, you know, how the, you know, high IOs were scheduled or something to that effect. And I just said to myself, tomorrow I'm doing something different. Mm. I left in order to start something that would be fun. And the, the fun thing I, came, I thought about was online multiplayer games. And oh, okay. so started a company to do online multiplayer gaming because it seemed like the most fun thing you could do with the internet. In 1994? Well, 1995 at that point. Okay. Yes. Wow. That's early. That's early. Well, it was early. And that actually, you could put that on the, uh, as the epitaph (laughs) in the company. (laughs) (laughs) We were too early. We were doing this with, people had uh, 1440 baud, you know, dial-up modems. Yep. Uh, The latencies were very high. And we we put a lot of energy into dealing with latency. Uh, We had matchmakers that would very carefully look at the latency of individual players and group people into game sessions Hmm. uh, based on their proximity in space to each other that is in, 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 in network space, not physical space, though there's a relationship. And uh, we worked with some early internet, internet service providers and co-locating equipment, which was an interesting exercise because the first time we approached a internet service provider about co-locating our game servers in their network, the head of operations for this company uh, said, over my dead body, Will any customer ever put a machine wow. in my data center? Wow! And of course, wow! That's that was, out there. In five years, that was their business, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but it was it was an interesting response, and we finally found one uh, provider who, when we asked the question, said, "You know, I don't know why you want to do this, but I've sort of taught myself that if somebody asks me for something, you know, listen, and we'll work with you." And that was PSINet. And so right. PSINet yeah. worked with us to uh, create optimized uh, traffic. So we, had, we were able to prioritize the game traffic on their network. And we located uh, game servers uh, in, through the, throughout their network, geographically dispersed, in order to manage for latency, because late, this latency mattered. Right. Uh, we also did a lot of work in the uh, client-to-game server uh, link that would be irrelevant today. We were, we were squeezing you know, two, three bytes at a, at a time out of the game protocol. And today that would be irrelevant. We were working with the game developers on algorithms they could employ to hide latency. So when, when you have, when, when you fire a weapon, make sure there's a big explosion and a lot of smoke because that gives you time to resolve state between all the clients so that when the smoke clears, everybody sees the same player is dead. You know, when in, in again in a first-person shooter game, you would be sure that if you if you were shot one or you shot someone, one hit wasn't a kill, because a single hit was required precision in how you adjudicate and 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 distribute state. But if it takes multiple hits, then there's time to figure it out, and the the, the lack of precision in the network. And in your protocol was hidden by a lack of precision in the game experience itself. That's great. And so we worked with the developers on, on helping them build multiplayer gaming. We actually had one of our fellows uh, spent a month at in Mesquite, Texas with id Software, converting uh, Quake from IPX, SPX to, to IP. So it was originally written for the Novell 
uh, network land, protocol, right, yeah. land protocol. And, and so we uh, converted that to be uh, the internet capable game. And so you could play Quake over the internet. You know, the first uh, version of Quake had a, uh, had an M player splash screen on it, giving us credit for, for that work. Wow. wow. And, but it was, you said the company itself was, this was too early. We were for, too early. Yeah. We were too yeah. early. And, and so uh, eventually it, it sort of divided up and, and assets were sold to different companies. It did go public, but that was 1999. And, you know, just like there was an era in baseball yeah. where everybody's record has an asterisk on it. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think a lot of companies yeah. should have asterisks Everyone on their asterisk on, on the 1999. I've been, I've been 1999. Exactly. Uh, yeah. The, the was, 99 IPOs, I don't think, deserve uh, the same credit as uh, before and after. It was a very different era. That's for sure. Uh, so, um, and then, so, so what was next for you after that? I did a few projects uh, just as a consultant to the projects. I helped with uh, Walmart.com and yeah, uh, right. a company which uh, did a, a storage controller that was eventually uh, purchased by, uh, by Brocade called Rhapsody Networks. Hmm. And uh, was you know, so are uh, the storage controls. So you're you're back in the device driver. Oh, of course. Can't stay, away. <laughs> Can't stay away. I should have erased all that from my uh, from from my resume, so people would forget. But it kept coming back to haunt me. So right. So I couldn't get out of that industry. Uh, let's see. Early 1995, I or 2005 rather, I got a uh, a call from folks at Excel Partners asking if I could help out with uh, with uh, a couple of company they'd invested in, a few guys from Harvard who'd started a social network. And my first response is, social network? Have you ever looked at Friendster? <laughs> and, and they said, no, no, this is different. It has nothing to do with that. And uh, and so I, I figured I'd hang out in their office for a few weeks and help help out with recruiting. And uh, I spent 10 years there. That, That's and, cool. And so we, what was your kind of first impression walking into, into Facebook? Uh, small team. Uh, I love small teams. I love people doing things uh, from the seat of the pants and, you know, not having a lot of process, not having a lot of, uh, of rules. And there were no rules. I mean, this was a, this was a development team. You know, we're sitting around a small table today. Well, that was pretty much the environment. You know, somebody was going to edit a file. They'd say, okay, I'm, I'm in home.php and nobody would touch it for until they said they closed it. So no source code control, uh, no auditing, but that's, Small teams, I mean, I've done the same thing, you know, a hundred times. You start the project with one, two developers and, uh, and and then you sort of have to introduce layers of process and eventually release management and testing and frameworks and the rest. But early days, you have a, you have a, uh, a, a blank slate to start with, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, what, what impressed me about Facebook, because I really wasn't intending to work there. I was uh, really going to help recruit a VP of engineering and someone to run operations and I was bringing a few people in. The chemistry wasn't just wasn't clicking. There were great folks uh, uh, who've really gone on to do fantastic things. But the um, I couldn't sit in the office and watch people work and then not say, you know, let me show you a different way to do that. And uh, <laughs> and so I would sort of dive in on a few of the engineering issues. And I'd say, and at the same time, I was looking at the at the inbox. I wanted to understand what are the problems this site has. What type of issues of the users running into. So I read the, the unread mailbox and there were 75,000 unread messages because the person who was assigned to read that only worked weekends. Uh, she was a student and, uh, you know, worked weekends and read some messages and responded to them. And of course, the rate of arrival was much greater than that, you know, she would ever be able to, to, to meet. And people were writing uh, love letters. 
I mean, they were writing, huh. they were writing poems. People were saying, I showed up at school and I was so afraid I wouldn't know anyone. And using your site, I've met so many people and I feel like they're all my wow. best friends now. They said, it was and, like, that's so yeah. nice. And then, it's a different era of social networking. And then somebody sure. would write a note saying, well, you know, I'm showed up at college and I was so sad at missing my friends from high school, but I now know what they're doing and they post things on a daily basis. And I understand what they're up to and, huh. and I feel so close. I still feel so close to them. That's so good. And I read this and I thought about it and said, you know, Veritas, sort of a big company. I mean, uh, 6,000 employees, uh, like one and a half billion in revenue, thousands of customers. But I never saw a love letter from a system administrator <laughs> saying, your volume manager made me happier. Right. <laughs> I used to be afraid of losing my data until I met right. you. Right. I've never seen FS Check run so quickly. Yes. And, 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 <laughs> and, and, and I thought about it a little more and said, well, you know, companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year trying to convince people that their products make them happier. And here's a company that spent nothing, that simply built a product and their users are saying, I use you because it makes me happier. I yeah, thought about wow. Coca-Cola and Pepsi. I mean, what is, look at their ad campaigns. It's all about how their flavored water is going to, their sugar water is going to make you, your life better. And here was a product where people were saying, you know, in concrete terms, their life is better because they're more connected to friends. And the truth is that is what matters. I mean, it, you know, what, what really matters in your life, it's the, it's the connection you have with people. It's the, it's not the number of friends you have. It's, it's how close you are to them. How much you, if you have a friend and you never talk to them, then it, they're not adding to your life. You're not adding to theirs. And what Facebook was doing was increasing that information flow between people and that enhanced those relationships. And it, and in turn, in, for created happiness for folks. And I wanted to be part of that. That's great. Yeah, no, and that's huge. So saw obviously the, the the power in that. And that's in, so that's in 2005. That's 2005. And so at that point, you because I, I first met you in 2007. And, and the when you uh, were pretty well, I mean, you were pretty well entrenched in Facebook. You guys were, at that point, Facebook was really catching on. And lots of people were, it was, it didn't feel, uh, um, it, it felt like it was exploding in all the right ways. It was. And of course, I remember you very meeting that meeting you very viscerally because I was talking to you when my wife was about to have our second kid and I was going to come down and meet you, I think the day before she was due. And you gave me a warning based on your, <laughs> was it second kid or third kid? Our uh, second was born very quickly. Yes. We, we showed up. At, my, my wife woke me up at, a, I think, a 6.30 and we were on the way to the hospital at 6.45. We got there at 7, and we were really ready to go home at a quarter of 8. So, <laughs> Which, it, I mean, that is, you know, Steve, you've that, got three kids. I mean, that is... That's, that's record time. That is terrifyingly fast. So I <laughs> I was definitely like, wow, I know this is this is on the metal, not on the pregnancy, but wow, that was a, that was a scary... Uh, that woke me up. I think I... I, yeah, I, 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 I postponed think, the meeting, I think. Because I think you were telling me that, you know, the due date's tomorrow. Oh, and, I was and, very blasé about it. Yeah, and you were, you know, two hours away. Oh, I had plenty of time. <laughs> and, and you're and, like, well, let me... Hold on, youngster. <laughs> a few things. Let me slow your roll a little. Yeah, no, it definitely... Uh, but it was a lot of fun to get down there with you and the team. And so then how long were you... I mean, Facebook, you quickly got to some of the same deep technical problems that you, I mean, back in the device drivers, but you, you, you got back oh, to the course. metal. Of course we did. In fact, one of the first really interesting problems uh, that we dealt with was uh, our use of memcache. And for those of you who don't know, memcache is a uh, distributed hash table. 
And it has an operation called a multi-get, where with a multi-get, you take a collection of keys and the driver then will, understanding the hash function, will sort those keys across a collection of servers and then make a request to the servers in the pool to respond with uh, the corresponding uh, data values. Well, we worked really hard on the memcache code. We had to improve its scalability. We had to improve its performance. Uh, it, we, re, we made it multi-threaded. And in doing all of this work, we actually made it faster. So we reduced the total instruction path of memcache down to a minimum, which meant that its variability was less as well. That is, request-to-request variability was less because the total time required for a request was less. What this meant was if you made a request to a memcache pool, let's say a pool of uh, 200 machines, and you were doing a large multi-get that had maybe 1,000 keys, you're probably hitting most of those 200 machines. So inside of microseconds, you would have 200 machines firing back their responses to your client, which is in fact a web server, but the client, so your client is making this request, it gets all the responses back, and they all meet for the first time at the top of rack switch on top hmm. of your web server. And of course, you the next step is buffer overflow. So you drop some packets and then you make the next request and you're, you're, you're using TCP. So TCP you know, has, uh, has uh, variable uh, retries and the retries keep getting longer. And soon these requests are taking milliseconds to perform uh, because of the retry logic. Because even on the second round, you started getting uh, buffer overflow as well. So this was a very challenging problem. It took a long time to really understand. And after that, uh, a fellow named Mark Kwiatkowski implemented a, uh, a just a fantastic solution. It was a sort of a UDP version of congestion control. If you made a broad request and you dropped data, then you would make fewer numbers of uh, you request from fewer servers the next time. Hmm. And it was adaptive. So if you got a response back from those servers and nothing was dropped, then it would try to go to a larger number of servers. And so it would break it into a multi-phase request and it would adapt to the quality of the network and the size of the uh, buffers relative to the size of network speed. And all UDP, so implementing the all, congestion. Everything done in UDP. It, 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 congestion control itself, not, not it, falling into any of, because TCP was really designed to protect the network and you don't want to protect the network. You want to get the best latency for the most users, right? That's correct. Um, interesting. And so how long did it take to get to fully understand what was happening there. Too long. So I'd say the better part of a year before we really tracked it down. Initially, the first, you know, suspicions were it was problem, problems in the network, issues with switches, uh, problems with libraries. But eventually we understood that this was simply because we were making the, the memcache code faster. And if you have less variability in a faster code path, if, if you're talking about a, uh, half a millisecond code path, then it's going to be plus or minus 50 milliseconds. But if it's 50 microsecond code path, you know, you're 50 nanoseconds. So Interesting. So the, by making it more deterministic, you were increasing the odds of actual increasing, uh, uh, buffer overflow at the top of our act. That is exactly correct. And so it took us a bit to understand why the problem was getting worse over time because we were getting you, better. You'd improve the performance and it would, the performance would degrade enormously. Yes. It, yeah. That must have been frustrating. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So that was that was a probably one of the first hard problems we had. We had other we had other other issues. I mean, we had one that uh I'm talking a little out of out of school here, but uh we had one where uh the release code for configuration management uh missed installing mod PHP on a uh server. And so the PHP code was in, was was simply delivered. I mean, you you ship it. 
Oh God. Yeah. So that was pretty ugly. <laughs> <laughs> that happened once. And I think yeah. there's still fragments of that code. Uh, that uh, code, yeah. Floating wow. around the net. Yeah, that's yeah. hard to scrub the internet of all that one. And wow. So that just sort of reinforces, you know, the importance of of, of getting configuration management right and and, ver- and making sure that it's verified. Well, that's funny to think that like for a, a misconfiguration, we accidentally shipped the source code. That's like a new kind of failure mode at that time, right? That's not something we think of in a non-network system, certainly. <laughs> well, and it sort of uh, sort of elevates the importance of configuration management. I mean, it's, it, people sometimes think that these are, you know, sort of like the um, uh, basic problems. You know, they're not the exciting problems. But in fact, if you don't get them right, uh, you can't do anything. What was what was the? I mean, I have to imagine the the single instruction found back at Intel was maybe up there. But was there one that was the most gratifying kind of bug you found or resolved in your your career? I would say that if I had to point to, you know, the one that I, we spent the most time on, I'd say the problem I just mentioned. Uh, oh, wow. Trying yeah. to understand why it is the better we made memcache that in some ways the mm-hmm. worse it, it, it performed. We could increase the total number of requests per second that a server could deliver, but these error rates continued to increase. And I think that took longer than it should to uh, to. Well, also, out, you're but, a long way from being able to just use a logic analyzer to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's a big, complicated system. Yeah, and we had to understand the switches and and get the right metrics out of the uh, switches switches to understand what was happening. It, that must have been frustrating, I assume. Yeah, that was that was a big one. <laughs> that was a big one to actually figure out what was going. So then, when was the genesis of of the Open Compute Project then at Facebook? Was that a couple years? Oh, that was later? Uh, many years later. Okay. So, uh, many years, you know, in, in internet time. Right, 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 right. Two, right. two years later. <laughs> right. Nice. Three years later. Uh, and uh, the Open Compute Project, uh, Jonathan Heiliger was one of the drivers of, of, of that project. And there, of course, we're already at a scale where it simply made sense to have hardware that was optimized to task. And of course, in the early days, you're buying things off the shelf uh, because your scale doesn't warrant doing anything else. Interesting. So, you know, I, I think that uh, in kind of the modern era, um, we think of the hardware as not being important anymore, but um, it's still, it still is, it's still the underpinning of, of everything. I and mean, what do you see kind of going forward? I mean, first of all, do you throw up in your mouth a little bit when you see like serverless and cloudless and all this other kind of nonsense? <laughs> Oh, uh, serverless, I'm still grappling with. Uh, <laughs> nice, that makes two of us. Three. So I'm, 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 I'm sure there's a rationale there, and I'm sure it's just my inability to understand it. So Oh, I'm, don't I'm, be so sure. <laughs> no. I, I, you've got a kindred spirit in Jess. Yeah. So no, I'm still trying to work that one uh, through. Yeah, but things tend to come, you know, everything tends to repeat itself. So ideas which, uh, which you, you know, saw 30, 40 years ago suddenly become new again. And... Uh, you know, t- today we're looking at what do we do with non-volatile uh, RAM? You know, so uh, Intel's uh, Optane technology yeah. uh, is an example. There'll be interesting applications for that. And, if you, and I think back to an early system I used called Multics. This, yeah. this was at the GE Computing Group, which became Honeywell. Uh, they were participants in the Multics project with Bell Labs and MIT. And this was a system that supported a single-level uh, virtual store. Well, so there were no opens and closes, uh, reads and writes. You you simply attached to a memory segment and you used it. And then you detached from the memory segment and it was stable. Uh, and so you wrote IO-less uh, software. We're actually at a point today where we can do that. And uh, that really changes the application paradigm. The application, the state of the application is in, could be in the app itself. You know, you're not having to think about storage uh, management. 
Uh, but also you avoid sort of the semantic gap between read and write and what you're really trying to do with the storage. So blocking and unblocking and marshalling of data, uh, you know, putting it in a serialized formats, all of these things suddenly aren't important to the app anymore. You're simply, the data lives in the, uh, in, in the application of view of the data structure and never in the storage view of the data structure. And I think that offers that's going to offer some for the right applications that can be groundbreaking. Yeah, that'll be interesting because it, it allows for that abstraction to obviously be shifted. You still have to have to think about the non-volatility of that state though, right? I mean, if you leave yourself in an inconsistent state. You have to, you obviously you, have to have uh, paradigms for managing uh, consistency and for uh, logging and, and, ser- and ch- changes. So not ev- not all of the overhead of a traditional uh, database, for example, goes away. But you're going to implement this very differently. And if you, one of the ways I like to think about databases is saying, how well do they use their memory? A database that really makes effective use of its memory is probably performant. And one which, where the working set of the application is distributed across a large number of blocks, where there's maybe other used data in the blocks, you don't view it as internal fragmentation, but the other data in the block may not be part of the working set, but because of the way you needed to structure your index, it was inevitable that you had this on-disk organization, well, that database may not be uh, as effective as it could be because they're limited by the by the size of RAM. And if your RAM is allocated to data that doesn't matter, then uh, you're not going to get all that you potentially could out of uh, out of the hardware architecture. So, or out of out of out of the, your overall spend on on infrastructure. So, thinking about you know, new models for the database where it's all record oriented. You never have this notion of blocking because blocking doesn't matter in this type of a uh, single level virtual store. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities there. Yeah, interesting. But, and it will be the the databases themselves that implement it. So we'll still, it's not that everyone's going to need to think about that kind of, that non-volatile consistency, but it's that we'll be able to or maybe new databases think about it. This might be enough of a paradigm shift that it says that, uh, you know, new databases will uh, will will enter the enter the will take advantage of this uh, change in order to enter the market. Interesting. It may be some of the old ones are able to adapt to this model, but uh, you know that's a future I don't think I can predict. But I I just feel that this is disruptive. Yeah, the, the, interesting. And certainly, it feels like something that is that we're ripe for in terms of the non volatility of of main memory or getting main memory speeds with non volatility. Feels like it would shake things up quite a bit. There's the potential. This is, you know, sort of like flash disk shook up, shook up the storage market. Uh, you know, there are these technologies that are highly disruptive and they create the opportunities for new uh, players in the market. So I think this is one as well. So given the number of trends that you've been early on, let me know when you're going to the store to buy the Optane. Maybe it's now. I just need to, I gotta, I feel like we, we gotta be following Jeff wherever he goes. I mean, you, you, you've been- database companies falling out of that. The, exactly. Well, you know, like everything else, uh, unless you're wrong, some reasonable percentage of the time, you're probably too slow. So uh, I, I I don't know if that's a good investment uh, strategy. I, I, I'm wrong too. Okay, well, that, that's a relief. I'm wrong, like, I'm wrong enough to have confidence that I'm not moving too slow. Okay, well, because it feels like you've been right a bunch of times and you've certainly have been at the epicenter of some of the biggest shifts we've seen in computing um, and right on the metal all, all of those times, so... Jeff, thank you very, very much. Yeah, for this was terrific. Yes, thank you. This has been 
Amazing. The, the, this was amazing. And uh, well, I learned an important lesson is make sure you limit engineers to no more than three sales meetings a day. <laughs> <laughs> I think you drew the wrong lesson from that. Yeah, yeah, that, no. exactly. Uh, but Jeff, thank you very much. Um, and if people want to, in terms of, of learning more about you or, or your career or some of the technologies you're interested in, is there a particular place they should go to? Or are you? Well, there would be if I put something like that together, but I have to admit I have not. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, so maybe go check out Locust, maybe, it sounds maybe, like, for maybe, sure. Maybe I need to uh, I need to make that as a resolution uh, this year to 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 document some 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 of what I've done. But well, uh, if we can help you that. document it, we'd love to because I think it, that there's just uh, a lot in here. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having Thanks, me. Jeff. All right, and and thank you, dear listener, for joining us for uh, what was a terrific episode of On the Metal. Um, I am Brian Cantrell, and with me again with Jess and Steve. Adios. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to On the Metal, Tales from the Hardware Software Interface. For show notes, to learn more about our guests, or to sign up for our mailing list, visit us at onthemetal.fm. On the Metal is a production of Oxide Computer Company and is recorded in the Oxide Garage in Oakland, California. To learn more about Oxide, visit us at oxide.computer. On the Metal is hosted by me, Brian Cantrell, along with Jess Frizzell, and we are frequently joined by our boss, Steve Tuck. Our original and awesome theme music is by J.J. Wiesler at Pollen Music Group. You can learn more about J.J. and Pollen at pollenmusicgroup.com. We are edited and produced by Chris Hill and his crew at HumblePod. From Jess, from Steve, from me, and from all of us at Oxide Computer Company, thanks for listening to On the Metal.